Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We uh, all this week are doing best of Access Utah. We're uh, reaching in our archives, uh, bringing forward uh, what we consider to be the, some of our best episodes because it's the spring pledge drive. We're putting our best, best foot uh, forward and uh, we are seeking your support for Utah Public Radio and for Access Utah. Today's theme is fun and music. And uh, have with me in studio a person who's associated with many of our fun programs, Lynn McNeil, uh, who's folklorist and assistant professor of English at Utah State University. Welcome back. I am so happy to be here during the pledge drive and getting to express my love for Utah Public Radio. And uh, Katie Swain, who's our membership director, is is here. Did I get your title right? Yeah, that's ish. I, I have a number ish. of titles, okay. Okay. <laughs> but but good morning, and it is good to be with you. I've I've had that trouble in the last couple of days with Terry and Ted. I know they're in development, but I had to ask them on air what their title was. So it, it's hard uh, when you're not the talent. Right, yeah, Tom? that's right. That's the idea. Yeah, I'm the talent. So we <laughs> we should tell that story as we go along, so so that I don't come off as as big headed, but. Uh, um, I guess it'll be a humble brag, right? right. One of those. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're going to have fun uh, on the show today. We're going to hear from uh, one of our uh, occasional series, our favorite books. And recently we did a, uh, a show on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and Sherlock Holmes having a renaissance course. I don't know. It never goes away, really. But uh, we're, we looked in that uh, program how the characters changed over the years and uh, asked what Sherlock Holmes means in our culture today. We talked with... Uh, uh, USU Associate Professor of English, Brian McCuskey, and Utah author, Michael Homer. We're also going to uh, revisit a conversation with Jenny Mansfield, who uh, did a master's thesis titled, It's Ray Lynn with a W, Distinctive Mormon Naming Practices. The The name of the thesis is, is hilarious. And on that program, we explored the question, what's in a name? And asked you, what do you think of your name? And what was your thought process in naming your children? And are there names passed down in your family? We had a great uh, response to the program and heard some interesting names. And then finally, at this hour, we're going to hear some great uh, bossa nova music and samba music. Uh, it's a yearly tradition. We bring in the group Evening in Brazil for some great Brazilian uh, music. Before we get into all of that, uh, Lynn McNeil, why should we support this kind of programming? Oh, man, there are so many reasons to support public radio programming. One, I think, is that it does a fantastic job of incorporating both a local community for all the different places where people live in Utah and also giving us a more global international perspective on things. We sort of get everything that we need from public radio. And I know that for me, feeling a greater connection to where I live and the state that I live in and what's going on here and hearing people call in from Moab and Blanding and all these different places gives me a sense of identity as a Utahan that I totally wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, so, Katie Swain, uh, we've uh, we've got a lot going on this hour. Absolutely, and I love what you said there, Lynn. It's interesting because our theme this pledge drive is community, and I think a lot of what you touched on has to do with that idea of community, being a part of the public radio community, and um, this community of people who listen and understand these same stories that we're all participating in as we tune into Utah Public Radio. Um, It's really wonderful as well today because we have a challenge pledge going out from our friends Chuck and Lou Gay. Today during Access Utah, we are trying to raise $400 and dollar for dollar dollar that will be matched by Chuck and Lou Gay. So if you've been waiting all week to pledge your support, now is the time to do it. Of course, you can call 800-826-1495 to do that or go online to upr.org. 
Go online to upr.org, upr.org. That's the place to go, upr.org. Uh, this is exciting. We're raising money for Utah Public Radio and for Access Utah. It's uh, Lynn McNeil. It's always very gratifying to me uh, to see money coming in uh, and, and support. It's essentially your vote in support of Access Utah. That is so important as well when we think of the things that public radio does for all of us. I know just even being a good conversationalist, good company, a good dinner party guest, knowing what's happening in the world, knowing what's happening in Utah, the things that that UPR teaches me that I can then take out into the world and use to connect with other people and relate to other people, that is absolutely worth at least $5, if not $10 or $20 a month. And the place to go is upr.org, upr.org. Let's jump right into uh, this first excerpt. Uh, We uh, did a series, as I mentioned, um, we're doing a series on our favorite books. And by the way, coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to uh, have uh, Dr. McCuskey, who we feature in this uh, uh, episode, back. And we're going to totally geek out on Jane Austen. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, But this this program was on uh, Sherlock Holmes. And we looked at how the characters changed over the years and asked what Sherlock Holmes means in our culture today. We also explored Utah and Mormon connections, and we talked as well with Utah author Michael Homer, who's done some research in in this area. Uh, So let's hear an excerpt from this program on Sherlock Holmes. To begin this uh, segment, uh, Brian McCuskey, I wonder if you could read something for us. Certainly. This is one of my favorite passages because it suggests that Holmes is both looking at the world as a place that's absolutely fantastical and as a place that's perfectly logical at the same time, going back to what I said earlier. This is at the beginning of a case of identity. He says to Watson, my dear fellow, life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out of that window, hand in hand, hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs, and peep in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chains of events, working through generations and leading to the most outré results, it would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusions most stale and unprofitable. In other words, the real world is uh, much more interesting and and, uh, mysterious than any story you could write about it, which has the neat effect in saying that in a Conan Doyle story of making these stories seem more realistic. Mm. Yeah, interesting. That's what he was going for. Yeah, Um, That's a good place for us to jump in and and, uh, have you talk about this phenomenon that you stumbled upon, Ron McCuskey, of uh, the use of a fictional character— as an unimpeachable source in this debate between creation, uh, creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. First of all, how did, how did you encounter this? Well, I was doing um, some research for my classes on Darwin, and so I was reading some of the contemporary debates between scientists, evolutionary biologists on the one hand, arguing for Darwinian evolution, and then the resistance put up by creationists on the other hand, who argue for intelligent design, which is that God created all this, that evolutionary processes did not. And what I kept seeing over and over again was uh, appeals to fictional authority, appeals to Sherlock Holmes, citations and quotations of Holmes in order to bolster first the intelligent design argument. And um, the intelligent design argument is flawed in a number of ways, regardless of of, um, the beliefs behind it. 
um, there's circular logic, there's moving goalposts, there's uh, begging the question, there's all kinds of logical problems there. At moments when the logic becomes most uh, strained, typically the reasoner would then invoke Sherlock Holmes, in particular the famous line, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, that axiom works extremely well if you're a fictional character living in a fictional universe which has been authored on your behalf so that you're always right, so that you always see every option and you can eliminate uh, with certainty uh, all but one. It doesn't actually work so well in the real kind of messy world. So I was tracking this, and then I started to see that the scientists responding to intelligent design arguments would also start quoting Sherlock Holmes. So it was a kind of smackdown over, you know, which side of the argument could um, claim Sherlock Holmes as their as their mascot, basically. And this despite the fact that you've already established that uh, some of the uh, facts that Sherlock Holmes holds up in his deductions have holes in them, right? They're not, they're not absolutely solid. Yeah, well, and the speed of the story depends upon him identifying a couple of options and then eliminating one or two of them, and then he's left with the truth. And this always works, or usually works, for Sherlock Holmes. But there are signs in the stories that even the characters in the stories are a little bit mystified about how he's doing this. Mm. At one point, uh, he's talking to a client about how he knew uh, what she'd been doing earlier that day by reading the dust and the mud on her clothes. And he goes through this whole elaborate explanation, and she looks at him and says, well, whatever your reasons, you are perfectly correct. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is it doesn't matter what Sherlock Holmes's reasons are. Uh, the inferences that he draws are always correct, mm -hmm. no matter what. That's one of the reasons we admire the character, isn't it? It's, you know, that he seems so brilliant. Yeah. Sure, and, and his approach is perfectly sound. I mean, he does approach the world in a logical, scientific way. It's just that um, when you have to move continents to get Afghanistan into the tropics, or you have to invent uh, the existence of a swamp adder in India, uh, a snake, by the way, which in A Speckled Band has to do three things it has to drink milk, it has to be trainable by a whistle, and it also, most mysteriously, uh, has to wear a leash. <laughs> uh, we're not talking about mm -hmm. a universe in which the usual rules of logic mm -hmm. apply. Right. But it is mysterious, right? And that's, that's, Absolutely. That's, that's, the villains especially are very mysterious, including Moriarty. Who, who is, you know, that's, that's a wonderful character. Yeah, Moriarty is uh, fantastic because he's even more Sherlock Holmes than Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's one point at which they're talking to each other, facing each other down, and Sherlock Holmes says, you know, is there anything you want to say? And Moriarty says, uh, anything that I would say has already crossed your mind. Mm -hmm. And then Sherlock Holmes says, well, and then probably my reply has crossed yours. Right. Uh, so you have this wonderful showdown between two minds that are so good at deducing what other people are thinking that they don't even have to talk anymore. Right. This would be a good place to uh, bring in our Studio C clip, um, and, and then I'm going to want to uh, get into uh, studying Scarlet and, uh, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, very interesting visit to Utah. Uh, but this is, a, this is what Studio C, which is uh, from uh, BYU-TV, it's a group of young actors that's doing sketch comedy, uh, they took this idea of the... Sherlock Holmes Moriarty showdown. You have two very bright minds, and as you said, Moriarty is even more Sherlock than Sherlock is. Um, he, he's the big nemesis, and uh, this is what they did with that uh, showdown. What are we doing here, Sherlock? 
Come on out. I know you're here. Moriarty, he's back. Did you miss me? Yes, I did. Sherlock. Everyone else is so boring. Pool is a nice touch, Sherlock. Reunited where we first met. They're so predictable. Yet only half as predictable as you. So I assume you saw this coming. I assume you saw this coming. Yeah, and I assume we both saw this coming. No, not this again. Enough with the charade. Clearly, these are just laser pointers. Except, Except for the, the one pointer that John. John. So, you saw that coming, did you? Indeed. That's why I put a Kevlar vest on him while he was sleeping. I know. I snuck into your flat and took it off. I know. I was under the bed waiting for you to leave, and then I put it back on. Ow! So predictable. Well, did you predict I would bake you a cake? That's actually really nice. That's why there's a gun! Clearly you didn't predict that I had removed all the bullets. And baked them into these cupcakes. Sherlock, why are you doing this? To prove how smart I am, that's why I do everything. Sadly, you're not clever enough to have predicted this. Oh, really? Moriarty will bring a balloon to Ra, and it's not a very good one. Keep playing the tape. I knew you wouldn't like my balloon. Well, did you foresee my buying you a tricycle? I already put it on eBay. I know. I bought it again. Utterly predictable. Unlike these six pepperoni pizzas. And I brought a group of children to eat them. Impressive, Moyate. But I am afraid you have made one grave error. Your confidence amuses me, Sherlock. These children have a mutual friend, Cindy. And today is her birthday. Happy birthday! Did you and Moriarty just put together a birthday party for a little girl? Oh, fantastic. I did not see that coming. Of course you didn't. Your mind palace is more of a mind Chuck E. Cheese. There's Studio C, and the punchline removes the menace, which is usually there. It turns out Sherlock and Moriarty conspired to uh, throw a, a nice birthday party for a little girl. So, Brian McCuskey, this, the, the line there, I think, is, is apropos. Uh, why do I do all these things to show how smart I am? Was that, was that what Conan Doyle was going for? What, uh, he's obviously brilliant, or, or he's portrayed as being brilliant. I think well, I don't know that Sherlock Holmes in the well, Sherlock Holmes in the stories is certainly uh, susceptible to flattery. He does enjoy it when people comment on how amazing all of this is. But I think it has less to do with with Sherlock Holmes showing off his intelligence and more to do with Doyle trying to popularize the scientific method, which um, he believed in as a as a doctor himself and was trying to figure out ways of making science exciting and making intellectual labor exciting. Mm. So that is an excerpt from uh, our episode, recent episode on Sherlock Holmes. We uh, have an occasional series of favorite books. By the way, we're going to uh, we're going to treat uh, Jane Austen coming up in the next couple of weeks. We'll have Dr. McCuskey back in. We had uh, Brian McCuskey, USU Associate Professor of English there, and uh, you didn't hear him, but we had Utah author Michael Homer uh, talking about the, uh, the Mormon connection with uh, Sherlock Holmes. I have with me in studio uh, right now Lynn McNeil, who's Assistant Professor of English at Utah State University, folklorist, and... Uh, 
Katie Swain, who's uh, membership manager, manager, <laughs> membership manager. Thank you. And former Access Utah producer. That's right. I got my start here at Utah Public Radio with Tom on Access Utah. And and you did a great job. And uh, so I, I, I'm very proud that we now have full time here, Danny Hayes and Katie Swain, who got yeah. their start. We were, yeah, with we me. were both um, veterans of the Access Utah project, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, so um, Lynn McNeil, for me, and people on staff here know everything comes back to Studio C. I just, I'm a, I'm a, big, a big fan. So anytime oh. I can find it, but I was laughing and uh, pretty hard during that, that clip. But this was, this was an interesting discussion um, on Sherlock Holmes. I learned a lot in this discussion. That's one thing I'd appreciate about the program, I'm here hosting, but I learn a lot. Indeed. This is something, we have such amazing resources here on campus. Brian McCuskey is an amazing scholar, an amazing thinker. And, you know, you can take a class from him and, and get that sort of experience, or you can tune into UPR and have that experience at, at any time. You can go online and revisit the show and learn about it again. And I agree, Studio C, I've lost many an hour online to <laughs> looking through their videos and, and they're just very, very good at what they do. And I've learned a lot about folklore having you on the program. Oh, why, thank you. I'm always, as you know, happy to talk about folklore. Yes. It has a big presence in our English department and a big presence on campus with the Five Folklore Archives. This is an excellent, excellent place to be mm. thinking and studying and learning about folklore. And we try to, uh, you know, we, I, I try to match the audience. Sometimes I feel, you know, sometimes I get worried that I'm I'm just uh, treating the themes that I love. And uh, so, for example, you and I are big Star Trek Absolutely, geeks. absolutely. Uh, but I think I think a lot of our audience uh, goes along with this, hopefully. I hope so. And I think even if they're not particular fans of Star Trek, per se, that the idea of fandom, maybe you're a fan of Sherlock Holmes, the BBC production, or the recent films that we've had, that general attitude of fandom, of enthusiasm, of really appreciating the creative work that someone else has done, I think is something that extends more generally. And it's your prerogative as yeah, host that's, yeah. to pursue the things you are interested <laughs> in. That's right. As long right? as I don't get too narrow, I guess. <laughs> uh, we did a we did a recent episode on fandom. That's right. That was right. a very, very interesting discussion. Uh, that's right. Looking at what that means and specifically uh, fans creating works. Yep. And that's and then studios coming after them because of copyright. And that gets yep. into what the, the idea of what a fan is. I've been talking about that with my students this week. I'm teaching a folk art class and we've been talking about fan creations and that the definition of a fan is someone who goes beyond passive reception and into creative engagement. So making fan films as we talked about with Axonar or fan art or fan costumes, all of that stuff that active engagement is really what sets someone who watches a show and enjoys it apart from someone who's a fan. Going back to that original word, fanatic. Yeah, right? I recently had uh, Deborah Jensen in. Mm -hmm. uh, she's and she's she appears at Comic Con on panels about uh, you know being a fan uh, and cosplay and all that. You mm -hmm. know, so I, I learn a few things. I'm I'm kind of a you know aging Katie, aging middle aged man, but uh, <laughs> but I, I I keep I, I'm made hip or at least made to feel hip by associating with people of your age. Well, that's yeah. that's really nice to hear. Yeah. I think our, our generation appreciates that, right? We're, yeah. we're helping Tom Williams and, and UPR uh, stay young and hip. That's right. <laughs> or, or, at least, <laughs> or at least feel hip, right? There you we know? go. <laughs> that, that's the key because I, I don't think I'm hip at all. Uh, so, uh, Katie Swain, we're, we're, it's an exciting uh, day here at uh, Access Utah. We, uh, we have some exciting things happening and, uh, and we're getting some, uh, some money in. That's right. So we are in our pledge drive, and um, 
We, I, I mentioned earlier that we had a challenge pledge from our friends Chuck and Lou Gay, and we were trying to raise $400 during Access Utah, and really happy to announce that we've actually already surpassed that. I don't know if that's love for Sherlock Holmes or just love for Access Utah, but um, we really appreciate it. A couple of thank yous to Barry Sochat. Um, thank you to Shirley Joffs. She I, says, I think that's um, Socket. Oh, there we go. Socket. I think. Well, we'll, we'll if go it's with the your, one, if it's the berry I know. We'll, we'll go with yours, <laughs> yeah. Tom. Um, and and Shirley Joff, she says that um, it, it's important to support things that we love, and she loves UPR, and that she hopes that her grandkids can tune in to UPR in the future. Oh, that's so, wonderful. That's really nice. Another thank you to Lee Austin, and I believe he is actually the the founder of Access Utah. He, he is. He is my he's my predecessor's host of this program. Uh, I learned a lot from Lee, and. Uh, Glad that Lee uh, still comes around and uh, is interested in uh, in what we're doing. So thank you. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, so big thank you to everyone who has already donated during the program. Um, let's not stop there, though. Let's keep the phone lines ringing, and let's keep the donations coming in to upr.org. Um, and we'd love to just keep surpassing our goals for the day. UPR.org, the place to go. UPR.org. Hope you will go to UPR.org, UPR.org and, uh, and uh, participate. Uh, become a member. If, you, if, if you're a potential new member, it's just a fast and easy process. A couple of minutes it takes. And if you need to renew, uh, now is a great time to do it while you're thinking about it. And specifically, during the program, we look at when the, uh, when the donations come in, when the pledges come in, and uh, that carries some weight. If you love Sherlock Holmes, if you love John Watson, if you love there are many <laughs> multitudinous manifestations that we've had throughout time since Conan Doyle wrote those books, then now is the time. Show that love mm. for Sherlock Holmes. Absolutely. Lynn, I wonder, I always ask people this, I've probably asked you before, uh, it's very interesting, at least to us, uh, because we make appeals and we hope we say something that will uh, will appeal, right, and, and, and get you to, to respond. Um, do you remember when you, when you made that important transition from being a listener to being a member? Wow. It was several years ago now at this point. And I, you know, I don't, I think it, rather than it being one overwhelming sudden epiphany, it was more like a slow creep of familiarity and realization that I get up in the morning, I turn on UPR, I listen to it throughout the day, I get in the car, it's always on, I get home, it's still on, I leave it on for my dog so he can become an open-minded, critical thinking creature while I'm away. And at some point, I just realized this was the media that was permeating my daily life. And I was benefiting so much from it that I wanted to give back. So there wasn't really a, I wasn't shocked into thinking all of a sudden that I should be donating, I should be pledging. It was just this growing realization that I was already a member of this public radio community and I should really do my part in that. And I think that's a, a common thing people feel. You, you by osmosis, you become a part of the public radio community. There are people out there now, I am sure, who are already a part of it, who know the schedule, just, you know, like they know the back of their hand. They know what's going to be on when. They're familiar with it. They recognize the news when it comes up in other venues because they've been listening to public radio. And if that's someone out there, then they should give back, do their part, you know, donate to Utah Public Radio. So, Kitty, how how do you do this? So maybe you could appeal to a potential new member because there's some nervousness, right? That's yeah, absolutely. How's this going to be, right? Um, so, sort of the the two main options as far as being a contributor to the station supporting UPR. Um, 
that we first of all we have our sustainers and that that is a monthly donation and we really appreciate um, the support from our sustainers it helps us because we're able to um, really count on those donations as they come in every month and um, plan budgets accordingly and um, you know plan the programming that we can we can distribute and that we can produce so um, if you're interested in that that's very easy you can have that come out just from your your credit card or from your bank account um, or if you're here on U, Utah State University campus um, that's actually can be payroll deducted really nice and um, that's our sustainer option if you would rather though then you can also do a one-time contribution and that's just a, a one lump sum that you give to the station and um, we again we use that for our programming and for our producing um, and bringing you the the shows that you love to listen to uh, so the place to go is upr.org, upr.org. That's upr.org. And uh, you can, there on our website, uh, see all of our thank you gifts. We have some great thank you gifts uh, for people uh, this time around. Uh, very popular, Katie, uh, this I, I think has been very especially popular, is the dollar a day. Uh, level. That's right. The dollar a day is really interesting because what it does is we give you the, then the opportunity to sponsor a day here on the UPR airwaves. Um, and I'll actually work with you and craft a personal message. Um, this can be in celebration of someone's birthday or in memorial for um, a loved one that maybe has passed on or um, just, just a general nice message to friends. Um, and I'll help you craft that, and then you you choose a day throughout the year, and then that day is now sponsored by you and your message, and it's read live on air from folks like Tom Williams or Carrie Bringhurst um, or Shalane Smith-Needham, some of those hosts that you love to listen to. They're going to read your name and your message throughout that whole day, and that's that's just $1 a day, our dollar-a-day sponsorship at $365 for the year. I can say from experience that it is very, very romantic to have someone <laughs> dedicate a day sponsorship of public radio to you. My husband very generously, I think last year, um, did the day sponsorship and chose our anniversary and had a very you know sweet message that came out for me. And everyone had heard it. That was the most fun part was where I'd walk on campus or throughout town, people would say, hey, I heard on the radio it's your anniversary. And I tell you, he scored a whole lot of points <laughs> with that one. So anyone That's looking wonderful. for a romantic gesture, it's the way to go. Excellent. So we do have this dollar for dollar match, which will, you know, if you if you were to pledge $10 a month, it becomes instantly $20 a month. Um, and I think that's all day, right? So we've we've exceeded the goal for this uh, this hour, but right, but that that's going let's on. Keep, let's all keep going, day long. yeah. Let's keep going with this. So tell us a little bit about this. So that's our friends Chuck and Lou Gay, um, and they have they have generously put a pledge match challenge for the entire day today, um, and we've sort of segmented that out so that we can make our hour by hour goals. Um, like Tom mentioned, we have already. Um, exceeded our $400 goal during Access Utah, um, but let's absolutely not stop there. Um, we want to just, you know, keep the giving going and reach our entire day goal. Um, let's get us ahead and not behind as we go into the rest of the day. Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we will uh, hear from uh, Jenny Mansfield, um, and uh, her uh, thesis was called 
It's Ray Lynn with a W, distinctive Mormon naming practices. I can't say that without laughing. <laughs> um, and, and it was a very fun show. And we're having fun. That's the theme, fun and music on uh, on the program today. Uh, tomorrow we'll uh, revisit our Pulitzer Prize winners. Uh, we had a whole uh, year last year of uh, Pulitzer winners on our program. Uh, but today is fun and music. We're talking with Lynn McNeil and uh, Katie Swain and with you, and we hope to hear from you with your pledge of support for Utah Public Radio and in support of Access Utah. And the place to go is upr.org. That's upr.org. More following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Let's get this one right. The group leader called out to her team who was building a complex custom demise. Then she corrected herself. She said, let's get this one righter. Awkward language aside, people who work continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, or enterprise excellence know that every product and every process can be made better. Nothing is ever perfect. They are comfortable with the permanent question, how can I make that better? If you cannot see ways to improve your product or service, ask your customer. If they don't tell you, your competitor might. But by then it might be too late and you'll be out of the game. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Center for the Arts presenting The Hillbenders, Tommy, a bluegrass opry. A full-length bluegrass tribute featuring banjo, dobro, mandolin, bass, and guitar to the Who's Tommy. Tuesday, April 11th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cashearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's best of Access Utah during the spring pledge drive all this week. And today the theme is fun and music. And hope you're having fun along with us. I have with me... Lynn McNeil, who's a frequent guest to Access Utah, thank you for that, and uh, Assistant Professor of English at Utah State University, folklorist at USU, and uh, Katie Swain, who's Membership Manager, and we are uh, we just uh, heard uh, from an episode on Sherlock Holmes, still to come, we'll hear some Brazilian music featuring uh, the band Evening in Brazil, and uh, next up, we're going to revisit an episode called What's in a Name? We had with us in studio Jennifer Mansfield, whose master's thesis was titled It's Ray Lynn with a W, Distinctive Mormon Naming Practices. And we explored cultural themes at work in Utah naming culture. And we asked, what do the names we give our children say about culture and about the values parents uh, hold? We also asked, what was your thought process in naming your children? Are the names you passed down in your family? Have you ever wanted to change your name? And uh, what do you think of your name? Uh, so uh, before we get to this, I think you know Jennifer Mansfield. I right? do, yes. She's a graduate of USU's folklore program. She was my student as an undergraduate and a graduate student. I have served on her thesis committee, and we are so, so lucky to have her. She teaches courses for us over in the folklore program, so some people might know her through that. And she wrote a truly excellent thesis on a really, really interesting topic. So let's hear uh, an excerpt from this uh, episode titled, What's in a Name? That brings me to a, a point. It's usually naming a child is, uh, you know, along with many things in marriage, it's a compromise, right? It's there's Absolutely. A, there's a process. Usually um, you don't, you know, husband or wife doesn't get to 
do, no. it, do it alone. Though I'm sure you've heard the jokes and maybe even the stories about the husband at the last minute blessing the child in church with a name that is different than the one that they've picked out together. Right. So explain this for non-Mormons. Uh, this is a distinctive Mormon naming ceremony. Pr- ceremony. Basically. And again, most cultures or religions have some sort of welcoming ceremony for babies or even naming ceremonies. And in the LDS church, that is, you go to church six to, I think you can, I don't know if there's a limit, typically about six to eight weeks after the baby's born. You take him to church. The father takes the baby before the congregation and gives that child a name and a blessing. And there's usually what they call the Simba moment, where then they hold the baby up for the congregation to see. And usually there's, you know, family comes, people gather, there's often food afterwards for the family and friends mm-hmm. that have gathered. Right. But it's the husband that does that on his own. You know, he does it with other male members of the family or friend circle. And so the wife isn't really involved in that process. Mm-hmm. Simba moment. I haven't thought about it, but it is a Simba moment. <laughs> and from now on in church, I'll be, I'll be thinking about Lion King. So, Every time the baby's presented. Right. So thank you very much for that. Um, so there, there is a negotiation that goes on. Uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know. Was there any of that with you and your husband? With your absolutely. And in fact, she ended up with Camille because at the time I didn't have much else to offer, and I didn't mind the name, but I wasn't sure how I felt about it. It was mm-hmm. okay, and it was important to me. The person we named her after is very important to me. Mm-hmm. But I wondered, like everybody else, we named her after a living relative. So the confusion between the two Camilles I was concerned about. But I didn't have a good alternative. So she ended up Camille. And it's perfect and I love it. But we're already in negotiations. Not even having a second child, we've already started negotiations mm-hmm. for the second right. one because it's a very long process. And I've seen I've seen those negotiations happen. Uh, some couples – you know, give each other a certain number of vetoes. Um, you know, what was that like with you and your husband? There was no limit on the vetoes. Okay. So it was a very long process. Mm-hmm. And we joke all the time, my husband does not feel impartial about anything. He loves it or hates it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we went through a lot of vetoes. Yeah. A lot of vetoes. I guess it's, it's, it's good to have two people putting their heads together, right? But uh, sometimes the, the end result seems to me, and I guess this is a judgment again, uh, sometimes names can be too cutesy. And then when the kid grows up. And that honestly was a huge motivator. That was the one thing that I took away from this, having written the thesis and the naming a child. I was very aware of the cutesy factor because having a daughter, it was very important to me that she had a strong name, that she had a name that would serve her well as an adult. And I don't know, and I know the people make the name. And I know that that's true and that Taisley might be an excellent lawyer someday. But I wanted her to have a name that would not stop her from doing anything. And again, that sounds like a judgment, like a name would stop you from doing anything. And I don't know that that's true. But I wanted her to have a strong name. I really wanted her to have a strong name because I felt like that was something that was missing from a lot of people that I talked to. Mm -hmm. They were not concerned about the strength of their daughter's names. Mm. And uh, strength is a perception, right? That's a judgment call. Absolutely. A, a strong name to you can be a, a different to another person. Although I do agree with you. I'd, I don't know. I'd, I'd have a little bit of an initial problem hiring a lawyer named Taisley. 
Right? Even I had a doctor. There's a doctor in town named Tandy. And I thought, Tandy, you're a doctor. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, not, you know, irreparable, right? No, of course not. If I found that Taisley the lawyer was very skilled, then I'd, I think I'd go forward. But Absolutely. I'd have that initial moment. Right. Um, and, and that changes over time, right? So there, oh, yeah, trends. There's, there, there are definite uh, trends. And, and parents, I think participate in trends by trying to counteract trends, right? They're, it's in an yes. odd way. In, in a funny way, mm. there's that negotiation between the trend and trying to do something that is anti-trend, which then becomes the new trend. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about names that are perceived as strong, there are a few sounds that researchers have found that people perceive as strong versus cutesy. And some of those are like the, the E, the long E sound on women's names. When it ends in a long E sound, there is that perception that it's not as strong as a name that ends in even a consonant, mm, okay. for example. Right. And I think that's the most extensive naming research as far as tastes. Mm -hmm. Ellen Lieberson did a really good job on that. But. Right. Um, so uh, you said you wanted uh, your daughter to have a strong name. So you want you want the name to influence her. I do. That's a motivation, right? Absolutely. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think most parents take naming seriously. And that is something that I respect. I was... I think I maybe talked to one person who said, well, it's just a name. It's not a big deal. I think most people took it very seriously, took naming seriously, because there is this idea that your name influences you. Like your name, when you're named after somebody, there's that connection. There's that expectation. And it does get to identity, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, so, for example, you know, famous examples, um, transgendered individuals who, who then, you know. yeah. Bruce Jenner became Caitlin. Caitlin, um, and 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 that's that's now part of that identity. That's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, you, have, have you encountered people who have been dissatisfied with their name? Absolutely. Changed it later in life. <laughs> it's more. I've honestly found more people who are dissatisfied with the name they give their children, and then they change their child's name within the first year or two. Oh, so the parents the changed parents their minds. The parents changed the name. Okay. Yeah. Because I haven't, because mostly where I'm concerned with the people bestowing the name, I haven't talked to the bearers of those names quite as much. And so I haven't talked to anyone who has grown up and said, I really hate the way my name is spelled. Let's change it. But I have talked to parents who have given their children's names and then thought, oh, no, I've made a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. right. Let's fix this while we still can. Right. Do you remember examples of what Silly parents were dissatisfied ones. with? Um, Samuel was too common. They changed it to Samson. Really? Yeah, Jeffrey, too common. Jefferson, you know, they've mm. just those little tweaks that make it. I think there's one, the most significant one was they named their daughter Victoria and then changed it to Summer. Really? Victoria was too heavy. Hmm. I, I think that'd be good combination, you know, first and second name, Victoria Summer. <laughs> right? That, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. And yeah. most people see middle names as well. Mm -hmm. If they hate their first name, they can always go by their middle name. Yeah. It's yeah. that good safeguard. Right. Yeah, I have a brother who uh, my parents very proudly gave him a, a Welch, you know, name of Hugh, which is not not very common, but he goes by David is it because <laughs> he preferred that, at least as a young man. Um, I don't know. I haven't talked to him lately, you know. To, to see whether he now thinks he was – I think it's great because it connects to Welch Heritage. Right. It's a nice name. Yeah. It is interesting to see, though, how 
your feelings about your name change from when you're a child to when you're an adult. Yeah. Because I know that I've heard of people who say, oh, I hated spelling my name as a kid, but as an adult, it's great because I'm the only one. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell this story. Um, Hugh is an excellent name when you're screening for, um, uh, you know, for robocalls or for sales calls. <laughs> Uh, because they some it's not as common a name. Well, I don't think it ever was very common. It's not super common. But it's certainly in in Swiss population they don't know the name. So if my brother gets a call for hug, <laughs> he knows. It's, it's spelled H U G H, of course. <laughs> then he just says, "Well, hug isn't home." Yeah. You know, he he you knows got the wrong this number. isn't you got the wrong number. <laughs> so yeah, hug. Very useful. So I, I like to call him Hug now. You're listening to Access Utah. By the way, uh, love to my brother Hug. Uh, if you're if you're listening, uh, the, yeah, yeah, Dave does. He, it, it's a big advantage because if if they call for hug, he can just say, "Well, hug's not home." Uh, we're we're having some fun on the program today. Our theme is fun and music, and uh, we are doing themed uh, programs. We're doing best of Access Utah this week uh, to um, celebrate the program and to encourage you to uh, pledge your support to Utah Public Radio and to Access uh, Utah. So uh, a fun conversation there. Uh, by the way, you can check out these full conversations on our website, upr.org. Uh, click on Programs and Access Utah, and you find all of the all of our programs from our archive. And this one's uh, definitely worth uh, looking up again. Jennifer Mansfield, her master's thesis, It's Ray Lynn with a W, Distinctive Mormon Naming Practices. We got into a full discussion on what's in a name. So that, that was a lot of fun, Lynn McNeil. It was, and I really hope that someone with a really unique Utah name calls in to pledge right now, just so we can see what the names are. I remember when Jenny was working on this research, and it's it's a thing that a lot of people not from Utah don't think of as being unique to Utah. That's not a culture that, that people from the outside always think, oh, really interesting, unique names. And then the minute your your first taste of local Utah culture, you start finding out in the spelling and the pronunciation and the meaning and the origins, backward spelling, all of those things come into naming in Utah. And it's just a fascinating topic. Uh, one of the interesting uh, points that Jenny made, I, I'm not sure in that segment, but in the program was that... Uh, a lot of Mormon parents want to be distinct, but by trying to be distinct, they're actually becoming, you know, less distinct yes. because everybody's trying to do it. When nonconformity becomes the norm, you end up seeing maybe not everyone is Raylan with a W, but everyone has some version of a more familiar name that's spelled differently. And that does become a pattern on its own, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It might disappoint those individual parents looking to stand out and be unique to realize that they're part of a larger cultural trend. But I think that also gives Utah really fun, unique level of identity. So I don't think it's bad that it does happen on a larger scale. Right. Uh, I, uh, If you can't tell, I have a lot of fun at my job, and it's, it's, a, it's a great job. Uh, and uh, it's one of the reasons I'm a member of Utah Public Radio. I learn from preparing and from carrying out these programs. One recent uh, example was I had the, the opportunity to interview for the second time uh, I'll name drop here. Um, um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, mm. the wonderful historian. Uh, MacArthur Genius as well. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. In, in fact, when I interviewed the, her the second time, I uh, brought up to her a phrase which I will never say in my lifetime, but which she has, uh, which she said in an interview, which was she felt like her MacArthur grant helped her to get over the pressure from her mm. Pulitzer. And, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you could think that that was a humble brag. If, you, if you've if you met her, though, you know she, yep. she's so earnest. 
I'm sure it's not a humble brag. It's just, yeah, it was absolutely. the truth. Mm-hmm. Pulitzer did p- apply a lot of pressure to her, and then MacArthur allowed her to some freedom from that. Uh, so, you know, something I'll never have to worry about. But anyway, um, her latest book is on polygamy and the experience of Mormon polygamy in, in, the, early, in the early years. Mm-hmm. And she goes to journals and uh, to diaries and uh, gets the experience as written down by, by, by these women. Um, that was just a fascinating opportunity to learn about it. I got to be there as the interviewer, but it was, but it was a wonderful thing to, for me to learn about. And to learn about it from the perspective of the people involved in it, that's something that we rarely get a chance to see, especially the farther back we go in history. We tend to get uh, aggregated views, institutional views, general consensus, but to have someone go back and find the voices of those people actually engaged in this situation, this particular historical context is just a wonderful opportunity. We hope that uh, all of this is worth uh, something. And we've had some great response during this hour, uh, Katie Swain, um, and we hope to keep that going. Yeah, actually, while we've been talking, we had a few more donations come in. Um, So big thank yous Thank yous to Scotty Mitchell and Lauren Anderson. We really appreciate your support. Thank we you. are in the middle of our pledge drive, and you are really helping us get to our goal. We've surpassed our our challenge goal for the hour, and um, at this point, it's all just um, extra into the next hours and helping us get to our full day goal. Really appreciate that. If you love Access Utah, um, or if you're enjoying this conversation in particular, then we hope that you will join them in supporting us. Go to upr.org or give us a call 800-826-1495. It's really making me happy that a show about fun is generating so many pledges. I just think that that says something nice about society today, that people are, yes, you know, serious, intense journalism also has a very important role to play, but so does having fun. Uh, you, you, you have to let your hair down, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, is there a, do you, do you happen to know origin of that uh, as a folklorist? Put you oh, on the to spot. Let your hair let down. Your hair no, down. folklorists always disappoint people with knowing origins of things. This is absolutely true. Everyone really hopes, and even I hope, that folklorists will be able to know the origins of various phrases. What is interesting, and this is, you know, just another sad way that folklorists let people down on a regular basis, is so many of our origin stories are in themselves folklore, mm-hmm. not necessarily accurate, but we have such a drive to know the origins of things that there's huge long emails that circulate online with the origins of all these different sayings like dead ringer and and all of these things. And almost all of them are false. And <laughs> wonderful people who are not me have done the, the legwork of, of discovering this. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's an interesting push and pull. We want to know the origins so badly that we jump on. And so I could make one up, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I could right, invent right, an yeah. origin for where that came from and it would suddenly begin circulating. Yeah. But I'm not that quick. <laughs> Puts me in mind of uh, idiomatic phrases, which are which are just so vexing when you mm-hmm. go to a new language. Mm, absolutely. Well, when I was learning Spanish, I just you know where 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 in the world did that come from? For example, headache is my hair hurts. Yeah. yeah which you know, I, yeah, I guess it's a well, accurate. Well, you know. well, Tom, if you had long hair, then you might understand that. <laughs> if you could let your hair down, right? Actually. Yeah. That that will happen. Uh, I could let my hair down about that. Yes. <laughs> I remember a story once about the phrase "I'm just tickled to death." Where that's a, you know, I'm very pleased. I'm tickled to death to meet you or something like that. And the attempts to translate that literally into another language, which is really rather ghastly mm-hmm. if you yeah. think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then if you start thinking, you know, start thinking about the idiomatic phrases in English, it must, it must be 
really problematic for someone learning English. True, very true. Where in the wide world does that come from, sort of thing. <laughs> Um, so we, uh, we would love to hear from you. We are uh, nearing the end of the hour, and uh, we want to uh, keep this momentum going. It's been a, a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for your response. If you have not responded yet, we hope to have your uh, membership, your pledge, in support of Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. Just go to upr.org. That's uh, upr.org. Let's uh, now hear just a bit from a program that we did. We do a yearly program uh, featuring the band Evening in Brazil. This is uh, Mike Christiansen, Christopher Neal, uh, Linda Ferreira Linford, and Eric Nelson. And they do yearly concerts, and they come to our studio uh, on those occasions, and we're grateful they do, because I love Brazilian music. And uh, I think a lot of our audience does as well. So here's just a bit from uh, our recent episode with Evening in Brazil. some Brazilian music. We're enjoying a yearly tradition here on Axis Utah. We invite members of the band Evening Brazil with us in Studio C and we're enjoying the music for the hour today. And we're hearing Eric Nelson on saxophone, Linda Ferreira Linford on vocals, Christopher Neal on guitar and vocals, and Mike Christiansen on guitar. So I previewed a history lesson. Maybe you could take us through how Samba and Bossa Nova developed. Okay, well, when I was uh, doing some work in Brazil, they uh, had me kind of walk through some of the history of it to get the, the feel for how the contemporary sound should be. And um, I was surprised to find out that uh, it, it got its beginnings actually with polkas from Europe. Really? And not so much Birl Birl polka, but, uh, well, that too, I guess. But like Rachmaninoff polkas and, and that kind of thing. And the, the polka was this typical rhythm. You know, it's just this... Um, and a feeling of being in two. One, two, one, two. And so when that got to, to South America, the, uh, with the African influence in Brazil, they started syncopating that rhythm a bit. So they would play the first part, well, and souped up the harmony a little bit. But so you would have this kind of a feel. And so you'd have like two halves of, of the beat. There'd be first half and second half. So they would syncopate the second half then. This gave birth to the churus, the mashish, uh, which are Brazilian styles. And uh, that gave way to uh, the uh, samba. And they started syncopating both halves of um, So it was even more syncopation involved with the samba. Actually, to do the samba correct, it's uh, you anticipate the first part, and then you don't the second. And they continue that that style, that rhythm, all, all the way through the piece. Well, in the year 1950s in, in Rio, the uh, aristocracy down there thought maybe that this was just a little bit too 
wild and maybe just a little bit too busy and they wanted something that was a little softer, something you could sit on a beach and have a drink with an umbrella in it and, and just enjoy the sunset. So they took this same rhythm uh, and they, they just simplified the rhythm a little bit. And Christopher, maybe you give them an idea of the Brazilian beat. So it's a little bit less complicated, a little bit less jagged and harsh, and a little bit smoother sounding. And it wasn't so much the tempo, because there are fairly fast bossa notes. That's uh, Mike Christiansen, uh, guitarist extraordinaire, and now emeritus professor of music, uh, giving us a little uh, history lesson for the, the samba and the bossa nova. Uh, you can find that uh, full program uh, by going to our website and use the website's uh, search function, Access Utah Evening Brazil. You'll find that uh, program. You can go to our website to find all of these programs, and we really appreciate you listening today and always. And uh, really appreciate your support. It's been great support uh, today. And if you have not uh, made your pledge in support of Access Utah and Utah Public Radio, now's the time to do so. UPR.org. UPR.org is a place to go. UPR.org. Lynn McNeil, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me in. It has been wonderful for me as well. And for everyone out there listening, now's the time. Tom, you said it. If you haven't donated yet, there's no need to wait. Do it now. Katie Swain, thanks. Yeah, and thank you. We've actually had um, a couple more donations come in, even as we were listening there. Stephen Van Geem and Lori Newman-Lee, thank you to them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, honey. That's my husband. <laughs> Stephen Van Geem, very good. <laughs> Maybe another dollar a day uh, message. I can only hope. That, that would be wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and uh, tomorrow we're going to celebrate uh, our... Uh, year-long series from last year uh, featuring Pulitzer Prize winners. And we'll have Cynthia Buckingham from Utah Humanities uh, on with us. Uh, In the meantime, uh, thanks so much for listening to Access Utah Today. service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.